If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> Sydney enlisted in the East Surrey Regiment in August 1915 at the age of 12. And he fought, he fought a lot. He was sent home after his mother sent his birth certificate to the war office and demanded his return. That was Emma Butcher talking about the history of child soldiers. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This summer we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of our podcast. And one of the ways we're going to mark this milestone is by bringing you even more episodes in future. From now on, we'll be releasing two episodes each week, one on a Monday and one on a Thursday. So you'll only have to wait a few days for your next dose of history. We hope that you'll appreciate this change and please do let us know your thoughts by emailing podcast at historyextra.com. Well, the subject of today's episode is child soldiers. The historians Emma Butcher and James Rogers are currently researching the history of children in war as part of their welcome-funded Legacies of War trauma project. The two have also co-authored a piece on the subject 
for the July issue of BBC History magazine. And I spoke to Emma a couple of weeks back to find out more. When we're talking about child soldiers, how do we actually define a child and what what does that actually mean? Does that change over time? Age is a very difficult thing in regard to studies on childhood because for us, um, in terms of legality, we'd consider a child to be anybody under the age of 18. However, is a teenager still a child? Is um, When does a teenager become an adult? When does a child become an adult? It's an incredibly fluid space of time. Um, for example, some of the children that we've included in our article are um, 17 years old. For example, the powder monkey, Robert Sands, who wrote the memoir during the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, was 17, yet is still considered a child um, per se. I would say that age categories fluctuate throughout history and there's no um, staple definition of what is a child. However, what we know is that people that we would definitely consider children are fighting in conflicts. For example, the American Civil War. Um, We talk about nine-year-old John Clem, who rose to fame as a drummer boy, is definitely a child throughout the world nowadays. Something like 23% of armed organisations use children under 15 and 18% use children 12 and under. And these are definite children involved in war. However, this category fluctuates. I don't think we'll ever be able to have a specific age for when a child is no longer a child anymore. In the past, did people always see this distinction between children and adults that we see nowadays or would they have just seen them as younger people was was childhood really such a separate category as it is today Childhood, um, I'd say, in traditional cultures, was of sacred category. There's a term in war called Justin Bellow, which means the laws of war and just warfare. And throughout history, there is a tradition that children should not be involved in conflict. And the children that we um, mentioned throughout this article, throughout history, just before, obviously, the epidemic of child soldiers in modern culture... These are very exceptional cases. Usually children, if they're involved in war, have menial chores. So, for example, pages within the medieval period would help arm knights or have almost kind of sidelined roles. So it was an exception for children to be classed as soldiers. And in traditional cultures, um, children, along with women, would be kept at the sidelines of war. From your research, what are the earliest examples of child soldiers that you've come across? The earliest examples, obviously, child soldiers are present in ancient culture. In our article, we've mentioned Spartan boys. The ancient Greek Greek city of Sparta was a military superpower and children were born into Spartan society with a military ethos almost ingrained into them. Um, Inspectors would judge the physical state of the infant and if deemed unfit, this child was most likely abandoned. So already at the age of seven, um, Spartan boys were removed from parents' homes and began something called the AGOG, which was a military training scheme. And so effectively, in these ancient cultures, children are equipped for war from a very early age. And this is reflective um, 
as we then go on to talk about medieval Europe with pages. Um, you've got the example of the Children's Crusade, where during the Crusades, children banded together and attempted to march over the Mediterranean Sea onto Jerusalem. So throughout history and in very ancient cultures and traditional cultures, you have examples of children involved in war. You talked about how children generally would have had a often a different role to the adult soldiers, but were they still facing similar dangers? Certainly. So if they're on the battlefield and they're acting in um, even sidelined roles, they're going to be exposed to the same dangers as soldiers on the battlefield. Even though children may not have held weapons because they couldn't use um, early weaponry because it was too heavy during the early historical period, nowadays much lighter weaponry is used in battle, which means that children can hold it. Children were still in the centre of battle. They were still in the heat of conflict, even in sidelined roles. Um, And we mention this in the article, especially in regard to the 1415 Battle of Agincourt. And there was a great story that um, Henry V was incredibly enraged by the French targeting his army's page boys. This is crystallised in history through Shakespeare's Henry V. And there's a scene in Shakespeare's play where Flewellen um, says to Henry V, um, kill the boys in the luggage, tis expressly against the law of arms. And Goa then says, tis certain there's not a boy left alive. And the cowardly rascals, so the French, that ran from the battle have done this slaughter. And effectively, Henry V orders his army to slit the necks of his French prisoners as a retaliation for this act of outrage at killing these boy pages. So children were still in the heat of conflict and still targeted. However, obviously, these were still exceptions in regard to how we see children on the battlefield nowadays. Do we know whether enemy forces would be more lenient with child soldiers? Would they be more likely to spare their lives? Would they treat them differently to adult soldiers they encountered? Well, a lot of cultures um, in terms of, and we talk about training child soldiers. So one group that we mentioned in the article is the Janissaries, who kidnapped um, children from local non-Muslim families and basically took them away. And it was, it was termed devshum, which is Ottoman for lifting or collecting. And conscripted children were then dressed in red and trained to fight within the army, but then wouldn't fight until they became of age. So in certain cultures, children would be taken, but then trained and then not used until they technically came of age. So there was this sense of even though they were utilising children for military practices, that children would effectively be given this special treatment and they would wait. However, there's not many records um, about in terms of whether they'd be treated differently on the battlefield. In terms of Agincourt, it obviously seemed an exception for boy pages to be targeted and it would be seen as unjust practice within warfare to target children, much like, say, the slaughter of women or the slaughter of elders as well. So there's examples of children who are actually being recruited as children, but are there also occasions where children were employed in armies because they were pretending to be adults? I mean, I think the the most obvious example might be the First World War there. Yes, definitely. So during the First World War, 
approximately 250,000 British soldiers were under the legal limit of 19 and joined the army. And um, we give a couple examples of this in the article. The youngest recognised soldier of the First World War was 12-year-old Sidney Lewis, who fought in the Battle of the Somme. And Sidney enlisted in the East Surrey Regiment in August 1915 at the age of 12. And he fought, he fought a lot, but he was sent home after his mother sent his birth certificate to the war office and demanded his return. Um, But when Lewis returned, he was awarded the Victory Medal and the British War Medal. And then he re-enlisted again in 1918. So there were some um, children who were very keen to enter into service early. One child um, we mentioned in the article was nine-year-old Alfie Knight, who uh, wrote to the Secretary of State of War, um, Lord Kitchener, and asked to join the army. And he said, you know, I can ride jolly quick on my bicycle and I wouldn't let the Germans get me. And Kitchener actually sent him a reply to thank him, but said he was a little too young. So there was certainly this eagerness for children to fight, um, especially around the First World War with the rise of movements such as the Boy Scouts. There was this general kind of militarisation of the nation also coming from the imperial movement at the end of the 19th century. This new generation rising um, in this military fashion in preparation for the First World War. So there was definitely a lot of interest and the numbers reflect this. But this is also um, the case in the American Civil War in the 19th century, that children would run away from home to join the army. Um, I mentioned nine-year-old John Clem in the article who rose to fame as a drummer boy, and he shot a Confederate officer. And by the age of 11, he was given a specially made rifle and the title of soldier. And he was the youngest ever soldier to be a non-commissioned officer in the US Army. And he eventually retired from military service in 1915. So he had a long life serving in the army. And he, in 1916, he was promoted to major general a year after his retirement. So you do have these stories of militant children who started very young and went on to have a very long history and career in the army. So you touched on an an interesting point there. For those children who weren't conscripted but volunteered to join armies, do we know what their motivations were and would they have been similar to the adult soldiers? A lot of my research focuses on kind of childhood interest in war. And there is something um, appealing to children about war. And a lot of children throughout history and now are interested in war gaming. And war is seen as this sometimes idealised but also adventurous outlet as well. Um, It's exciting. It's sensational. There's drama surrounding war. So you can understand why this would capture the imagination of a child. Obviously, throughout history, there's going to be different motivations and there's going to be unique motivations for why each child would want to join the war. For example, the child soldiers of World War One, there might have been this element of adventure, but also this desire to serve the nation, especially with the extent of the propaganda about fighting for your nation that might have captured their imaginations. Yet, Perhaps also we could argue or we could think that this interest in joining the military early would have come from wargaming or general play as well, Um, not perhaps thinking about the consequences or the more sinister elements of conflict. 
nowadays, for most young people, the idea of joining an army sounds pretty terrible. But in older times, thinking back perhaps the medieval period and earlier, would life at home actually maybe sometimes have been worse for a child than joining the army? Could the army have actually represented a better life for a young person? Well, certainly in the medieval period, it was actually tradition for noble boys to be sent from their family homes and stationed in other aristocratic households where they served the lord of the estate. And they would conduct menial chores and go through military training. And in turn, they would receive um, hospitality and education. So there's a certain amount of tradition there. We talked about the Spartan period as well, that children were militarised from an early age. So in fact, there was this tradition and this status quo and norm for children to be part of this kind of military ethos. However, throughout history, there's instances of people joining the armies um, because of it was seen as a better life. For example, during the Napoleonic Wars, many of the working classes or men in hard times would join the army um, for a better life, for the chance to actually eat or be part of some kind of family. So perhaps this might have been a motivation. But I would say throughout history, in certain areas, it was, in, it was the status quo and the norm. Through your research, have you come across much opposition to the idea of child soldiering? I think that it's clear from the reactions, um, say in, in World War One, when children were found to be on the front that they would be sent home. There was the instance of 13-year-old George Maher um, in World War One, who lied about his age and was sent to the front. And his true age was revealed after he was found crying during some heavy shelling. And there's an interesting article in Punch magazine which satirised the epidemic of willing youths going to a front and the officer points to a young boy in a soldier's uniform and states, you know, do you know where boys go who tell lies? And the young applicant says to the front, sir. So there obviously is this condemnation of children being part of war at an early age in the fact that they are getting sent back. And the fact that um, in the American Civil War, for example, where there's children lying about their age as well, it's interesting that sense of lying about when children actually, you know, that they're having to resort to lying, which automatically implies that there is some controversy with them going to the front. But then equally, as I said, as you go further back in history, it seems to be the norm. I talked about in medieval society, aristocratic homes sending their children for this life. And also during the Napoleonic Wars, powder monkeys were the norm to serve in ships. And that it would be a child's job to ferry gunpowder um, from the powder magazine in the ship's hull to the gun crews. It was a dangerous job, yet children were nimble and able to nip in and out of the, the chaos around them and actually do the job. So children have a purpose. As you go back through history, children have this purpose and the fact that they are nimble, they are quick, they are small, and they can be useful in battle. So it's interesting to see that shift. Nowadays, when people think about child soldiers, their focus would probably be on recent conflicts in Africa. But do you see similarities between this and the kind of long history of child soldiering? Or is this really a modern phenomenon? This is definitely a modern phenomenon in the sense that the modern child soldier really rose to prominence during the 1990s. And 
We would argue and we comment on in the article that children who had little, once little use in combat roles now are able to use weaponry of the modern age and with modern weapons like the Kalashnikov or the M16, which are smaller, lighter weaponry with less recall. And the child is an easy recruit effectively, um, that if you raise villages to acquire children is easy. And most of these children are highly drugged and trained and brainwashed. So effectively, um, you can have these easy and mass recruits. It's generally accepted that well over 300,000 children are currently fighting in wars. And This is certainly a symptom of the modern age, especially with the rise in weaponry and the ease of being able to recruit these soldiers. And even though most state actors are outraged by this, um, some state actors do use children in conflict, but mostly it's non-state actors such as armed rebel, ethnic and political opposition groups who can form their armies from these easily acquired child soldiers. So I do think that this is a symptom of the modern age. And certainly it's wide scale issue for organisations such as the UN and charities such as War Child, who are um, attempting to highlight the atrocities of and the, the predicament of this child soldier epidemic in modern society today. Can we see a connection here with the Hitler Youth? Because was that one of the main examples of young people with access to modern weapons being employed in the front line? Yes, definitely. So the Hitler Youth and the League of German Girls were the primary tools used in the Nazi regime to control Germany's future and ensure the health and the ideological values of the Nazi regime were implemented into the German nation. But when things started to take a turn for Germany towards the end of the war, these ill-prepared children that were um, inexperienced and very lightly trained were sent out as a last resort to the front line. One of the vows of the Hitler Youth was to be ready as a brave soldier and to stake my life at any time for this oath. So when they were called upon, um, many were sent to the front line ill-prepared. Sometimes it was the first time that they'd held a gun. Sometimes they were given only half a day's training and put into very ill-fitting SS uniforms. So Effectively, even though this was a state actor using child soldiers, it was very much a last resort. And this shows the um, atrocities and the tragedies of using children in war, because most of these young recruits were slaughtered very quickly, especially when the war was effectively already lost. The experiences of children in war is one of the main areas of your research. How easy is it to find sources for this kind of thing? I mean, did many of these children leave many records? My main research area is looking at children and war in the 19th century. And one of the things I'm particularly interested in is the role of the child within the military family. And I argue that children um, actually were active social agents in war in the sense that they were involved in the family's um, correspondence about war. And they also wrote letters and journals recording their own experiences and 
actively um, influence the family and military decisions in war as well. Obviously, when you're trying to find children's journals and letters and diaries, it's incredibly difficult within the archives. Most of the material that I found has been buried within family correspondence. You're not faced with the luxury of going into the archives and things being catalogued as child writing about war. It's incredibly difficult. So I would say that it is difficult to find the voices of these children in of these children within war, because usually children's voices are sidelined. We don't necessarily take what they have to say seriously. Um, and we see a lot of what they write as either um, throwaway or perhaps apprenticeships for later writings or their later life. So it is incredibly difficult to find these stories, but they are there and they are buried within the archives. I found letters of children at the age of six saying to their writing to their father during the Anglo-Afghan war saying, you know, daddy, um, I want to be like you when I'm older. So I've bought myself a knife and also a sailor suit. And this is a child at the age of seven. So you can really understand the legacies of the military within the family and also the influence of adult states of feeling within war and how that's passed on to children. Um, there's also really interesting dialogues between adults and children in the archives. So I've come across diaries from the Crimean War where fathers are sitting by the fireside talking to their children about what they've seen in battle. And it's like a question and answer session between father and child. But it's very rare to find these examples. And there's a lot more to be uncovered because the voice of the child be it through history or in the present day, is still marginalised. And I think it's our role to start listening to these children because they have important things to say. Obviously, children have been involved in combat throughout history, be it as soldiers or experiences as civilians or with family members going to war. And children have a lot to say throughout history about war. And I think that much more research needs to be done on the history of children in war, because actually a lot of what they say is incredibly important in understanding war and understanding family dynamics and understanding different nations. So I'd really promote the child's voice as an important voice in war. That was Emma Butcher, who is one of 2017's BBC AHRC New Generation Thinkers. And as I mentioned, you can read a piece co-authored by her in the July 2017 issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And now it's time for this week's History News with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. The remains of a Roman building dating from the early 3rd century AD have been uncovered during excavations for Rome's metro system. The charred remains suggest that the building collapsed in a fire. Italy's culture ministry have described it as, quote, a Pompeii-like scene, as the fire caused the artefacts within, including frescoed walls, mosaic tiles, a wooden ceiling and the skeleton of a dog, to be unusually well-preserved. Earlier this year, excavations for the metro also uncovered large Roman barracks dating back to the 2nd century AD. In other news, 10,000 fragments of medieval pottery have been discovered in Pembrokeshire, Wales. Archaeologists found the pottery in what they believed to have been a medieval kiln, the second such kiln discovered on the site at Newport Memorial Hall. They are now appealing for volunteers to help sort, wash and clean the thousands of fragments. Over the past four weeks, BBC History magazine fans have been voting in this year's History Hot 100 poll, nominating the people in history who have got them talking over the past 12 months. We've had a huge number of nominations and can now reveal the names of the 10 historical figures who received the most votes, in a shortlist including Richard III, Shakespeare and Queen Victoria. Voting is now open once more for you to decide which person from our top 10 fascinates you the most. Go to our website, historyextra.com, to cast your vote. The poll will close at midnight GMT on the 10th of July 2017. We'll announce the results in a future issue of the magazine and online. Just before we go, I wanted to quickly mention a survey we're currently running for users of our History Extra website. The survey will allow you to help shape the future of the site and you'll also receive some Amazon vouchers if you're picked to take part. You can find more details and how to apply at historyextra.com forward slash web survey. And I'd also like to mention a fascinating new podcast from Professor Rab Houston, who's one of the historical advisors to BBC History magazine. Entitled The Voice of the Mad, it follows his previous podcast series on the history of psychiatry in Britain. You can find the podcast at arts.st-andrews.ac.uk forward slash psychhist or by searching for Rab Houston podcast on Google. Well, that's about it for this episode, but do join us again on Monday when we'll be talking about female aviators in Nazi Germany. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast. 
which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.